Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Jigger Raythatha. Jigger is the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Constellation Pharmaceuticals. This company is built to develop drugs against epigenetic targets. Simply put, this is a way to turn genes on or off without altering the underlying DNA. The pharmaceutical industry fancied this idea about a decade ago as a way to shut down specific disease processes, but by binding with enzymes that can be reached with classic small molecule chemical compounds that the industry knows quite well. The concept, however, soon fell out of favor. Some of the early compounds scooped up by Big Pharma never lived up to the hype. Exciting new modalities like gene therapy and cell therapy emerged. When Genentech, Constellation's big partner, walked away from an option to acquire the little company in 2015, Constellation suddenly had a lot of explaining to do. Jigger entered this situation as CEO in May of 2017. He raised money, crafted a new development strategy, brought in some new blood, and took the company public. This year, Constellation burst back onto the biotech main stage with some preliminary clinical data for a drug candidate for myelofibrosis. The compound, CPI0610, is a bromodomain and extraterminal domain inhibitor. It has been tested in a phase two study known as Manifest. As a single agent and in combination with ruxolitinib, the JAK inhibitor marketed by Insight as Jackify. Constellation has looked at treatment refractory patients as well as people getting their first treatment. The results are striking, as I discussed with Jigger in the latter part of the show. More than 90% of patients are seeing improvements in spleen volume reduction and in total symptom scores, while also seeing their hemoglobin counts, which were depressed, come back up closer to normal. Results were even better in the first four treatment-naive patients. You can see the abstracts published on the American Society of Hematology website in advance of that medical meeting December 4-7, 2019 in Orlando. Constellation will be presenting updated data at that meeting. Constellation stock touched a low of about $4 a share this year. But as of this recording, heading into the ASH conference, the stock is worth $46.56 a share a market valuation now exceeding $1.5 billion. That is a turnaround. Now, before we start the episode, I'd like to tell you about the newest sponsor of The Long Run. Precision Nanosystems is lowering the barriers to developing gene and advanced therapies. Precision Nanosystems is a global leader in technology and solutions for developing RNA, DNA, CRISPR, and small molecule drugs, rapidly taking ideas to patients. In working with over 100 biopharmaceutical companies globally, Precision Nanosystems' expertise and proprietary technology is at the heart of many of the leading gene therapies under development today. Precision Nanosystems' nanomedicine development and manufacturing platform and reagents provide outstanding reducibility, versatility, and scalability with an intuitive workflow that requires no prior expertise. Precision Nanosystems can partner with you to bring your programs to patients successfully. To learn more about Precision Nanosystems, please visit www.precisionnanosystems.com. 
And are you a marquee service provider, eager to get your name out in front of the biotech leaders who listen to the long run? Stephanie Barnes can help you learn more about sponsorship opportunities. Find her on the contact page on TimmermanReport.com. And if you haven't already, now is also a good time to subscribe to Timmerman Report. Before you do, take a look at the testimonials page. You'll see industry leaders who have subscribed since the beginning in 2015. As Bob Nelson of Arch Venture Partners put it, quote, Timmerman is always ahead of the game, end quote. So what are you waiting for? Go to TimmermanReport.com and hit the green button that says subscribe. Groups that meet certain conditions are eligible for discounts. Ask me, Luke at TimmermanReport.com. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe. Now please join me and Jigger Raythatha on the long run. Welcome, Jigger Raythatha, to the long run. Thank you very much for having me, Luke. So, Jigger, I'm really excited to speak with you today. Uh, there's a story here about uh, a company turnaround, uh, as well as some really interesting data from your lead drug candidate heading into the American Society for Hematology meeting, uh, the ASH meeting coming up. So, lots to cover here. As you know from listening to this show, I like to talk a little bit about who the person is. Uh, before we get into what they do. <laughs> okay. So um, wh- where does your story begin? Where did you grow up? So uh, I was born and raised in New Jersey, actually. Born in Hoboken, New Jersey, and, and lived um, kind of my formative years in uh, the central and northern New Jersey, and uh, most of the time, actually, in a town called Edison. Um, and, uh, you know, gr- growing up, uh, you know, we were a family of four. My parents uh, had moved from India in the uh, early seventies and my sister and I, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're really kind of a first generation, um, Indian Americans in the, in New Jersey. Uh huh. And this is greater New York, New Jersey. Correct. Yeah. What, what did your uh, parents do for a living? So they were business people. Um, they, they owned a small business. They had, a um, uh, a few actually retail stores of, um, ladies clothing stores actually. Um, and I actually spent, uh, a good, a good chunk of my, uh, youth, um, helping them out, uh, and in various ways in, uh, in that business. And it was, it was probably a very formative experience for me in terms of learning a, a variety of different things that, that probably helped me today. Um, uh, but, but certainly, um, you know, at times it was a struggle. Uh, and so also learned a lot about resilience from that experience too, but, but they, they were, they were business people that, you know, at, at one time they had, uh, you know, three different retail stores, um, you know, at their, at their kind of, uh, their peak of that. Interesting. So how young would you have been helping out around the oh, store? Oh, geez, I was pretty young. I was probably, uh, you know, I was probably started helping them when I was, uh, six or seven years old. I remember, um, taking trips to that with them to, to New York city in our station wagon, uh, to kind of the, the garment district and kind of the wholesale stores and, and we'd, we'd pick up boxes and boxes of women's clothes and and haul them back to uh, to our stores in New Jersey. And then it was my, it'd be my job to uh, to open them up and and hang them. And um, you know, over time, actually, uh, one of the things that I got pretty good at was talking to people um, and uh, and trying to. I mean, I was this little kid and I was eight years old, and 
I'd go up to uh, you know some of the customers' stores. Hey, that dress looks really great on you. <laughs> you know, with, you know, as a, as an eight year old kid. <laughs> and so, um, but I think that that actually taught me a lot about you know how to think about talking to people and uh, relating to people and um, and selling to people. Actually, and, you know, a lot of what we do, uh, you know, these days actually is uh, telling a story, um, helping people understand what you're doing. So I, I actually point back to that experience quite a bit as a, as a formative experience in uh, in my biotech career. <laughs> Very fundamentals of business. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and did you stick with it? Did you stick with it? Like go, going through teenage years, high pretty school? much. Yeah, I mean, they they wound down the business. It got pretty tough after a while, um, especially when in the nineties uh, there was a bit of a recession, and um, you know they wound down the business kind of in the kind of mid mid nineties or so. But um, yeah, I helped them all the way throughout. I uh, spent a lot of my weekends. Um, you know, working with them in, in various different capacities, uh, uh, trying to trying to help them out. So you decided, uh, I guess, that uh, you like this business. Uh, you decided to go to Rutgers, and I see that you majored in biochemistry and economics. Yes, it looks like. So I I can imagine this is sort of like. I mean, in retrospect, an ideal sort of background to go into <laughs> yeah. biotech. Yeah. I don't know. What, was that the plan from the beginning? It certainly wasn't the plan. Um, I think, uh, you know, like most, most, most kids in college, I was, you know, figuring things out. Um, uh, you know, I, I liked science. I was good at it, uh, you know, in, uh, in high school. And, um, you know, a lot of my, my peers were also, my, you know, my good friends were also um, you know, becoming scientists. And, and so that, it felt like a natural thing to, to do. But I also, um, again, maybe, maybe a little bit of foreshadowing. One of the things that, that I've become quite good at, I think, is, is putting together um, information from a lot of different areas. And that's been kind of a theme, I think, in the various career choices I've made. Um, and, and so I was just interested in a lot of different things. And so, uh, you know, I took all kinds of classes. Um, I actually, I, I, if you, if you saw my transcript, I, I would load up my, my class schedule every, every semester with, uh, almost the max that I could take. Um, and I took classes in philosophy, I took classes in communications, I took classes in economics and science, and I was working in a lab and, you know, kept super busy, um, and so it was just one of these things where uh, over time I had just accumulated a lot of credits also in economics. And so it just, it was, it, it just sort of fell into it. Um, but, it, but it was, uh, it, you know, looking back, I guess it was a pretty good combination for what I'm doing right now. But that wasn't, you know, a uh, specific program that Rutgers offered to, you know, b- aspiring no, not at biotech all. executives. Not it at just kind of, it kind of happened yeah. that way. I wish they did actually. I've actually reached out to them a couple of times to help, to help think about how to help students uh, and navigate uh, their careers if they if they realize they don't want to be laboratory scientists and what should they do? But uh, I'm still working on that. So was there a point when you decided that uh, lab science wasn't really for me? Uh, how did you get on the track toward um, you know business of pharmaceuticals or biotech? You know, I, I learned actually pretty early on in college that be, you know being a, a laboratory science wasn't wasn't going to be for me. Um, uh, you, you know, I, I was doing, I did research actually all four years that I was in college, but I was not, not good at it at all. And I think a lot of it has to do with kind of fundamentals of, of kind of the, the patience that it takes to, to stick with kind of a, a very detailed scientific, um, uh, question, you know, over the course of many years. And, and I was, I was always much, much more, um, uh, kind of, you know, bigger picture, I guess, in, in, in terms of the way I thought about things. And, and I routinely, 
I routinely messed up the experiments I was working on. And it was, a, it, I, I found that to be very, very challenging. Um, and so it became clear to me that working, working in a lab, um, you know, just, just wasn't the right place for me to excel. Um, I still enjoyed science though. I, I, I did well in my science courses. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I thought about, you know, different, different ways, but that, that, that was, you know, I actually think working in the lab and, and not being, you know, very good at it actually, um, helped me kind of think through, well, well, what can I, you know, is there a way for me to then combine kind of an interest in science with, with something else? Um, and that's eventually, uh, kind of, I think what led me down the path that, that, uh, that I went down. So you, you finish up your degree at Rutgers, you, you go on to get an MBA at Columbia. What was the thinking there? Well, well, in between, I actually, um, you know, before I went to uh, Columbia, I spent a few years, uh, I, my first job at a college was working at uh, a consulting firm uh, called AT Kearney. Um, and it was, you know, typical management consulting. I think the, the first project I worked on was at Nabisco. And we were, we were working on plant operational improvements. And the next project I got assigned to was actually at Roche. And I was super excited that maybe maybe I would get to combine uh, kind of science and business, um, but but it was very very much um, you know not not related to science at all actually. Uh, um, and so then after about a year of consulting, I, I I wanted to I actually proactively decided to kind of make a make a move to try to break into the biotech field, um, and, and I didn't really know uh, exactly how to go about doing that, and I got a little bit lucky um, where where Biogen was recruiting um, for, for an analyst level role in their, in their new product planning group. Uh, and I was lucky enough to, to, uh, to get hired into that group. And, and it was, uh, you know, if you look, looking back, it's kind of a who's who in that, that was in that group. Um, you know, Carrie Pfeffer built it, but, you know, Katrine Bosley uh, was there, uh, Stuart Pollard, Dan Corwer, Steve Urtel, Corinne Noyes. It was, it was a very solid group of people that, that I got to learn from. And I spent four years uh, working at Biogen doing a range of different things. And that, that was a tremendous experience for me because it was a, a real uh, golden age at Biogen where, you know, we were just a couple years past Avinex launch. The company was fully integrated, global. Um, and, uh, and there was just a lot to do. And if you were young and you showed initiative and reasonably smart, you got to do a lot of cool things that you may not get to do uh, in a much bigger company or in a much smaller company where the opportunities might not be there. And so, so before going to Columbia for business school, I worked at, I worked at Biogen for four years, um, and, uh, worked on a range of different things that were, that were really, really educational. Yeah. Yeah. And this would have been late nineties, early two thousands. As you say, Avenex was, um, just then taking off mm -hmm. and Biogen had to figure out how to maximize that and also, you know, keep the pipeline moving along and, and build like, you know, a bigger sustainable company. That's right. For, yeah. For the long term. Yeah. So there was a, a lot of strategic thinking that, that went on and, and that group that I worked in, uh, was kind of the nerve center. Um, and, and the way that I approached things was really just being an information node, um, you, you know, to get, uh, you know, you know, scientists and business people and clinicians and manufacturing folks just kind of talking in the, in the, with the right language, um, and, and actually the, the job that I enjoyed the most there was actually, uh, kind of a program management program leadership type of role because it allowed me to really, you know, dig into, um, you know, how do you get a drug and move it forward? Uh, which was, which was quite gratifying. I also did some, you know, really interesting deals and things of that nature, but, but the program leadership, um, the program management piece of it, I thought was tremendously educational in biotech. And it's, it's something that people should really consider doing at some point in their career. 
Okay. Now, this is actually funny. You mentioned four years. I, I notice a pattern here throughout <laughs> your career. You tend to go somewhere about four years. You work in four-year chunks, and then you move on. You know, What's my, that about? My, my wife was uh, was uh, asking me this yesterday. She's like, how long have you been back at Constellation? I think it's coming up on three years. And she's like, okay, you have a year to go. And I was like, no, no, that's not, that's not, that's not the plan. It's just... Uh, uh, you know, I guess, um, you know, it's certainly not the plan going into it, uh, but, but I guess it's enough time where, where these companies can change and grow and you can have a real impact. And it's a good moment to kind of, you know, think about where you are and reflect and, and whether you have an opportunity to keep growing in the role that you're in. Um, and so just, it just so happens that it's happened to me every four years, but, uh, but certainly not the plan <laughs> and certainly not what I'm planning right now. So, so uh, you have this experience at Biogen. It's a good one. You learn a lot. You're in your 20s and you're thinking, okay, this biotech thing, this is for me uh, for the long term. Uh, uh, is there anything of, of great importance going to Columbia or is that just like getting a credential and l- learning a few more things to advance longer term? Yeah, you know, I, I guess I, I never took the step of getting an advanced degree in science. Um, you know, although I was I was really capable at communicating um, along those lines. Um, you know, I I did think that having some type of advanced degree would be important. Um, you know, looking back, I'm not sure it's crucially important, but I, but I definitely did learn a ton at Columbia. I met a lot of great people, broadened my horizons a bit, um, uh, and uh, you know, got to live in New York City for a little while too. And so so that that was really the thinking behind that. Um, but I, I did go into business school with a plan, uh, which was I wanted to graduate and get a job in venture capital. Um, and and, I, and I, I have to admit, it wasn't for all the right reasons. It was really for probably all the wrong reasons, because I just thought it was a really cool job to have. Um, um, and, and that was the plan. But, and I, and that's, that's what the plan I went with going into it and, and what, what I did coming out of it. Wrong reasons, like what? Well, you know, it just uh, it, it it sounded to me like it was you know you get to you get to decide whether you're going to invest in these companies and you get to make all these great decisions and um, you know and, and invest capital and and that just seemed very very fun and and energizing um, without truly having an understanding of what that was all about you know at that time kind of in my um, you know mid twenties um, it was definitely a, a a a good learning experience a good job to have um, but but again. Um, from the kind of, you know, when, when folks ask, you know, talk to me about their career choices, I always kind of talk to them about like, why do you want to do it? What makes you happy? And that certainly wasn't the, the thought process that was in my mind as I had made that choice. Um, not to say that it ended up being a bad experience at all. They can also make a good amount of money too. <laughs> you probably thought. That's right. That's that. right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it's just looking back, I, I think, um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, at least for me, I, I spent four years doing that as well. Um, you know, at some points, I found it isolating, and I found it also, um, you know, a, a bit, a bit too uh, on the surface. Um, at least, at least at the with the type of investing that the, I was doing at Red Abbey, um, and so you know, I felt like I needed to go much deeper, um, and and so you know, really reflecting on what you're good at, what makes you happy, um, I think is a crucially important thing to do, and not just focus on you know, you know the the cachet of a career or, or just the financial aspects of it. Yeah. Yeah. So you went to Red Abbey Ventures, uh, actually got mm-hmm. a Kaufman Fellowship, which is a pretty prestigious thing. I mean, as a young guy, yeah. I, I would imagine like that's a, that's a ticket to, you could continue on in the, on that track if you wanted to. 
but what, what, what kinds of things did, uh, did you invest in or, or kind of science or companies that you got exposed to that interested you during that it, period? Yeah, so, so Red Abbey, it actually was a, we were a relatively small fund um, and it grew out of um, uh, there were you know two, um, uh, two folks who were uh, you know business partners, uh, Frank Bonsall and Philip Collette. Um, Fr- Frank was one of the original three partners at NEA. Um, and Philip uh, was a scientist. Um, he trained under Sidney Brenner, actually, um, and then Eric Kandel. And so he, you know, he had a very strong kind of scientific background. Um, he, he also came from a very, very wealthy family, um, and uh, and he moved to Baltimore. Uh, and um, and he hooked up with Frank, and together they were investing in scientific entrepreneurial activities. And 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 part of that was uh, co-investing. Uh, you, you know, actually, they were LPs in. Um, in several funds that you'd know, kind of NEA, Interwest, Polaris, Domain, you know, you know there, there are seven or eight funds that they're LPs in. And every now and then they would co-invest uh, alongside uh, with their own capital. And, th- and that, that co-investment um, piece got to be large enough that, that they wanted to make that a, uh, a, a, a you know, freestanding independent fund. Um, and so, so that, that's, that's what we started. And that's, that's what I joined. It was a small team. It was myself, Philip, Frank, um, and a couple other folks that were that were involved in that. We also, um, I guess today we call it crossover investing. We didn't call it that back then, but we did do mostly, you know, Series B or C rounds where we try to find very interesting companies that, you know, other VCs had started up. Um, we also did invest in, um, you know, public companies, but more through privately negotiated deals, either pipes or registered direct offerings. And so uh, got a good exposure to both um uh, private investing and public investing, and, and we were fairly agnostic to um, therapeutic areas. Also invested in some devices, um, and so it was actually uh, looking back, it was a wonderful opportunity to get a lot of exposure to a lot of different uh, different types of companies, different people, um, as well as public and private investing in a very interesting time in the market. Actually, and and it's it's something that I. I remember uh, very clearly because I mean you probably remember that that was a very very choppy time in the market. W- which years are you talking about here in venture capital? Two thousand five to two thousand nine. Oh yeah, <laughs> I remember yeah. that well. So, yeah, and you know, and the public markets were actually working. I mean, companies were getting public; they were raising money. Um, you know, but it, it felt a little bit like like 2000, early 16, right? But all the time <laughs> where, where, you know, you're just eking it out and, um, and it wasn't, you weren't really creating a, a ton of value and it was hard to really grow a business. And, you know, sometimes you meet people who have been investing these days, you know, they, they weren't, you know, they didn't really remember those times and, you know, it can, it can get quite hard and we really just need to be mindful that it's, it's not always going to be probably this, this easy to raise capital, um, and and so we have to kind of keep that in mind as we're as we're growing our businesses as well. Yeah, yeah. The financial crisis hit hard uh, in two thousand eight. Yeah, pe- that's right. Pe- people forget, but um, you know yeah. that uh, that but was even a before time- that. It wasn't it wasn't easy. Um, I, I felt like two thousand five, six, seven were not easy times. Um, no, no, yeah. no. The number of IPOs in those years was oh, it was yeah. minuscule compared to what we see today. You know, a dozen that's or a right. couple that's dozen right. companies would go public all year. 
<laughs> um, That's right. And and, uh, and yet, and then the financial crisis hit, and uh, you know, all kinds of investors turned conservative. And so, what happens to yeah. biotech <laughs> and their portfolios then? It's sort of like the first thing yeah. uh, to to get rid of. So it was a very hard lean yeah. time. Uh, but you know, I was paying attention. I was writing then, and there was a whole lot of cool science. The science yeah, was that's continuing right. to make progress, and you saw this too. Yeah, it, uh, th- this is what how yeah, you got introduced funny. to constellation, right? Th- that's right. That's right. And it's funny what was um, what's new now was new back then too. So it's a lot. Of, it's a lot of things that were just actually starting to take form. Kind of cell therapy was just starting to take form back then, and no one was really paying attention. Oncolytic viruses and you know, gene therapy. No one really paid attention to that stuff back then, and, and now and now people really are. Um, but but that's right. That's uh, it was from that experience that I, I decided to to move back into the operating world. Um, you know, where, where I found myself was uh, um, particularly with the type of firm that Red Abbey was. Um, it, it was hard. I felt like it was hard to have a, a true impact. Um, and and while I greatly enjoyed um, learning about a whole host of different areas and, and meeting a ton of people, um, both investors and entrepreneurs. Um, I, I really longed to kind of get deeper into things. Um, and it was just very, very difficult. You know, we had, you know, 25 different companies in our portfolio and, um, and you know, we were relatively small investor as well. And even the bigger investors I felt like had a tough time getting overly deep. Um, and so, um, you know, I had actually called, uh, uh, one of my, um, one of my, one of the folks that actually hired me at Biogen, actually Kerry Pfeffer, um, you know, to ask him for some advice, and and he he told me he just shut down his consulting practice and joined this new firm that had just started up uh, called Third Rock Ventures, and they launched a couple of companies, and um, one of them was Constellation, and they're looking for someone to do all things business, and. Um, you know, I flew up to Boston. I met the team, and it was incredibly exciting. Mark Levin was the interim CEO, and Bob Tepper was the interim CSO. And uh, this this new exciting area of epigenetics um, had endless possibilities, and we were super early. And it was a it was an opportunity for me to really stretch into an area that that was very different. You know, I hadn't worked in small molecules really before. Um, you know, directly. Um, and certainly not at this type of early stage. And so it was, a, it was a great opportunity to really, really kind of spread into a new area. Now, what was it about epigenetics at that time? Here, it's 10 years ago. Uh, I remember lots of interest in the science, this idea that you could um, control gene expression, uh, uh, turn genes on or off without altering the underlying DNA. So you didn't need to do gene therapy. You could sort of silence genes without doing complicated gene therapy. You could do it with small molecules. Yeah, and I think it's still a tremendously exciting area that is is not at its infancy. Maybe, maybe we're kind of more toddlers or, or maybe uh, uh, kind of getting into the tween years now in terms of understanding kind of what these targets are, what they do. What we still don't understand is, is how to how to consistently link the biology to patients. And that was a big theme you know, maybe kind of foreshadowing again um, to to when I came when I came back to Constellation, something that's become a, a very important piece of our strategy. Um, but but precisely, I think uh, the the notion that we could uh, essentially um, y- you know conduct this orchestra of of the genes that are creating kind of the the music of kind of how how everything's supposed to work in our body with uh, with small molecules um, uh, that can that can tune things in the right way. 
uh, I think was a tremendously uh, um, uh, big idea and um, and still has a huge amount of potential. I mean, I think there's, only, there's only been a handful of targets where we've really kind of mined and explored the potential in a, in a deep way. And there's a, there's a lot more there. Yeah. So at that time, there would have been, you know, a couple of programs that were pretty far along. There was the the HDAC, um, I believe, from Merck, um, histone deacetylase uh, inhibitor. There was one that uh, Gloucester, I think, got acquired by Celgene. Um, so there were a couple programs that were pretty far along or maybe even FDA approved. But then there was just this whole like greenfield space that a few VC That's firms right. like, like Third Rock and, and a couple of others. You know, Epizyme was another contemporary of Constellation. Yep. Um, trying to figure out like, okay, um, where would you, what were the right targets and, and uh, what um, patients could you, could you help? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So it really got going when um, actually uh, uh, one of our founders, Danny Reinberg, um, was was really intent on trying to to launch a company around this. And uh, you know, currently our, our our chief scientific officer was a, a postdoc in his lab, and and the two of them really kind of hit the road um, and were were pitching the idea of creating um, kind of a small molecule discovery company around this. And, and actually, it was the Column Group. On the West Coast, and and Bob Tejan and, and Dave Goodell, who who really um, uh, really believe that that could happen, um, you know, and they wanted to put the company in the East Coast, and, and so that's how Third Rock got involved. Um, and so, uh, obviously, Dave um, and Mark Levin knew each other quite well, um, and so th- you know, th- Third Rock and, and the Column Group really uh, carried the weight to uh, to build the company, and Venrock also joined in those early days too to, to to get the company going. Okay, so you join in 2009. Company is like less than a year old. I mean, how, how many employees were there? I was probably in the first 20. I was the first business person that they hired. Okay, and so what was your uh, mandate? You know, it was everything from, you know, thinking about um, how to do business development deals and, and kind of sell. You know, this is, again, um, you know, Mark Levin was the, the CEO who was legendary in doing deals. Um, and, and so I think he had a vision of recreating Millennium in some ways. Um, and so really thinking about a business development strategy was uh, was front and center. Um, also, uh, you know, thinking about how to build a company. This is one of Third Rock's first forays, too, into company building. And so so really they were uh, kind of um, honing their craft there, too. So we were kind of thinking about what worked, what didn't work. You know, how do we think about follow-on financings? How do you syndicate? Do you not syndicate? You know, all those business aspects were things that, that I had to deal with, as, as well as a lot of operational issues like real estate and, um, you know, a little bit of kind of financial planning um, and, you know, basically anything that was not uh, directly related to uh, kind of moving the science forward, but also even though I was kind of peripherally helping on that with uh, building the story that we were and uh, that we were, that were working through. This is getting you deep in the weeds. You wanted to get deep. Now you're getting deep. Now, now I'm deep. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and but also working with uh, Mark Levin, who is, you know, famously, you know, visionary and seeing the, the bigger picture. So you've got exposure to both big picture and the details. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So it was, again, a tremendous time. So you're there for four years and uh, and then uh, you, you get that itch again to go do something else. You went to Jounce. Um, what, what prompted that? Yeah, so um, you know, just kind of uh, while we were working through uh, kind of the, the the building the science at, at Constellation, 
um, you know, we started to get traction around a couple of new targets. I mean, one one was quite uh, um, uh, one was quite uh, competitive. Uh, one was EZH two, where there was a handful of companies that were working on it. It was it was challenging and difficult from a drug discovery perspective, and we were making headway there. And the other was um, the Bet family of proteins, and that the science just kind of exploded all around us. And uh, you know, really, us, um, you know, Jay Bradner's lab um, and uh, GSK. Uh, we're really driving kind of the forefront of the biology around uh, bet inhibition. Um, and, uh, you know, the drug discovery was certainly more tractable around, around bet inhibitors than it was around things like uh, EZH2 or other methyltransferases. Um, so those two programs ended up being, um, you know, the, the lead programs in our portfolio. And, and, and we got to a point maybe about three years into the company where we had a uh, line of sight to um, development candidates and potentially moving into clinical development. Um, but we also had a lot more that we needed to do. And so we were pretty active on the business development front, which, which was quite, um, uh, you know, hectic at that time. I think all the big pharma companies were looking for a way to build an epigenetics capability internally. And most were either doing it on their own or trying to build partnerships to do it. Um, and around kind of 2011, um, you know, we were in very, very active dialogue with multiple different companies. And one of those was Genentech. Uh, and and you know, this was a very famous deal that we ended up doing where, you know, Genentech had prioritized, you know, two different areas, uh, immuno-oncology and then epigenetics as the future of their oncology pipeline. And, and they hadn't made a lot of investments in epigenetics internally. They really had hired uh, a couple of senior folks that cared about it a lot. Um, and so, so they worked with us uh, to essentially help them build that. Um, and so we put in place a three-year collaboration where, you know, everything we did was with Genentech, and they brought 50 scientists to the table. We brought 50 scientists to the table, um, and and really focused on you know, new target discovery and, and early chemistry. Um, but but then there was the the lead programs that we had that um, that that we didn't want want to include in that deal, and Genentech really wanted them in the deal. And so the way that we squared all that was with uh, an option to buy the company, and we we pre baked that, and that was going to be triggered with the first phase one data from either one of those programs. And so once we put that deal into place, um, you know, it became, um, you know, very much kind of execution mode on, on the uh, um, kind of the, the, the science and, you know, driving something into the clinic and through the phase one and delivering that package to Gentech. And so from a, a business perspective, I, I, I wasn't fully, fully utilized. And so um, I actually, I didn't, I never really wanted to leave Constellation, but, but I just didn't have a full-time role anymore. And so I spent half my time working with Third Rock to incubate new ideas, and one of those ended up being Jounce. Precision Nanosystems is lowering the barriers to developing gene and advanced therapies. Precision Nanosystems is a global leader in technology and solutions for developing RNA, DNA, CRISPR, and small molecule drugs, rapidly taking ideas to patients. In working with over 100 biopharmaceutical companies globally, Precision Nanosystems' expertise and proprietary technology is at the heart of many of the leading gene therapies under development today. Precision Nanosystems' nanomedicine development and manufacturing platform and reagents provide outstanding reducibility, versatility, and scalability with an intuitive workflow that requires no prior expertise. Precision Nanosystems can partner with you to bring your programs to patients successfully. To learn more about Precision Nanosystems, please visit www.precisionnanosystems.com. 
So 2011, 2012, we're still in a downtime for biotech. Venture capitalists are, are not looking at some rosy IPO market or, you know, even multiple bidders, like even if you've got good science. So there was a concern like, OK, if we're going to put in X amount of money, how are we going to get Y out? And, and uh, th- there were, around this time, some deals structured that, you know, uh, may, could make, um, you could cap your upside, so to speak. So you can kind of become a research wing of Genentech, essentially, um, uh, for epigenetics. And if you hit certain milestones, you could uh, reach a predetermined acquisition price, which would make the investors reasonably happy. Um, and the, you know, the acquiring company could be reasonably confident that they've got something that they can pick up and then run with. Um, but you know, that, that's not the kind of deal that you would do today in a, in a hot market. You don't want to limit your options, right? That's right. Yeah, that, that's certainly true. I think, uh, I think that was part of the calculus was that, you know, there, you know, we believe that there's a lot to do, um, and you know we had already raised by that point seventy five million dollars, and you know back back in those days that was quite a bit of money for a preclinical stage company to have raised, and the prospects of of a, you know the investors achieving some type of liquidity through a public markets was non existent, um, and and uh, you know working with a partner where there was you know some uh, reasonable possibility that that can lead to a, a multiple uh, on their investment through an acquisition I think was. Was uh, was exciting, um, as well as being able to work with uh, a very strong scientific partner in, in Genentech who really understood yeah. uh, uh, you know cancer and, and and drug discovery quite well too. So, so there was sure. multiple factors leading us to to, to to take that route. So Genentech, it's you know this great science based organization. Uh, it's on the west coast. It's also like very strong in biologics, not so much in mm-hmm. small molecules, at least in those days. Uh, yeah, three-year deal. You're going to come to uh, a fork in the road, and and they'll decide whether they want to acquire either the AZH2 program or the BET, the the Broma Domain and Extra Terminal Domain uh, Inhibitor Program, right? Yeah. So their option was to acquire the whole company, um, and uh, so so that that's it was triggered by data from either one of those two programs, but they had to take the whole company or or not. Okay. So. How, how did this uh, partnership go? I mean, from the outside, I you know I, I do know yeah. <laughs> we're aware that after three years were up, Genentech decided to walk away. Yeah, so um, you know I was there for maybe the first um, almost year of it, um, and and certainly uh, you know after that I was I didn't have a front row seat to it, but. Um, you know, I think it was a challenging. Uh, it, it was it was a fruitful partnership where there was you know very very good science that was generated, but I think from a it was challenging for, uh, for sure. I think for for both sides, I would likely say um, where you know Constellation had a very um, you know, we were used to kind of doing things the, the way that we wanted to do, and now all of a sudden we've got we've got someone that we're working with, and you've got to um, you know really uh, uh, kind of. Uh, kind of bend to a, li- a little bit of the compromise of, of what their what their needs are too, and and, and this is um you know one of the, the things that you know companies really need to keep in mind as you're entering partnerships is that you know anytime you're working with a larger company even even through the best of intentions you know they've got likely a much larger portfolio and a much different set of decisions that they're managing than you are and uh, and that certainly was the case you know with uh, with Genentech where. 
where we felt that, you know, hey, we've got this great kind of program that moving forward, we want to, we want to unleash uh, resources in a way that we would have done ordinarily, um, you know, in a much more, um, you know, much less risk averse manner. And for Genentech, it was like, well, we have got to take it to the RRC and, and, um, you know, it's going to compete against, you know, everything else in our portfolio before we decide to kind of unleash those resources. And so certainly, um, you know, issues like governance and things of that nature um, became quite clear as the importance of, 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 of those types of things. And I think those, those ended up being quite challenging for uh, Constellation and Genentech to really align on over the years. And, and uh, you, you know, while, while I don't think anyone really likes to say this, but probably had some impact on, on why they chose not to acquire the company too. Well, there's uh, it's a natural tension between small and large company. You've got That's a couple right. of programs that are your uh, your bread and butter, and it's like do or die <laughs> with That's those right. things. That's and, right. and there's an ur- there's an urgency and a speed and a focus that comes with That's that. Right. And right. and that's just not not the nature of of a larger company. But as you say, Absolutely. they've got other things to do. Um, That's right. But but okay. So three years come up, and then um, uh, you know they walk. And uh, I remember you. Uh, there were people. Now you weren't there at this time. You had left, as you said. You had found some other things to do with Third Rock, and there was this company Jounce. I don't really want to spend any time on your period at Jounce, okay. but um, at, at Constellation, uh, they they held like a little independence party and tweeted about it in 2015. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember, like, I think a lot of people looked at this like, well, wait a minute, Genentech walks. Yeah, that doesn't really look good. Like maybe there's maybe it's just not that promising, right? I mean, yeah, if it right. were really hot stuff, Genentech would have bought the company. Yeah. Uh, and wait a minute, you guys are having a party? What's that about? Yeah, yeah. So probably probably not the the the, the best kind of choice of memes to use. Um, but but just uh, you know, knowing what what the company was going through, I understand why that happened. Uh, you know, there the way that deal was structured. Um, you know, Genentech. Uh, you know, they, they were trying to figure out what Genentech was going to do for quite some time. Um, and, uh, you know, I think Genentech took every last second that they could take. And so, um, you know, which was probably quite frustrating for the, the folks at Constellation. Um, um, and, you know, especially going into uh, and, and living through kind of 2014 and 15, which was the some of the hottest uh, um, capital market years in the public market and having that kind of pass them by was probably quite frustrating uh, uh, to see. Um, and so, so I understand it. Um, you know, pro- probably not the, the 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 wisest choice of internet memes to use, though. Okay, so you uh, in 2013, just uh, as a, a short detour, you go to Jounce. You're one of the very first employees there, building up that cancer immunotherapy company across town. Uh, really, you know, grew that up into a, a nice success. A hundred employees took that thing public. Uh, but then, uh, twenty, I guess, 2017. You get a call from someone, I guess, on the board at Constellation, like, "Hey, hey, Jigger, um, you want to come back?" Yeah. So we actually had a. Um, it was actually it was it was one of those moments again where it was quite clear uh, that after you know four actually it was four and a half years at, at Jones, um, you know, we did a, a really nice deal with Celgene, um, and we took the company public, um, and so you know, you know, for from again kind of a strategic perspective. Um, you know, I, I felt like I had accomplished a lot and, and where the company needed to go was more, um, you, you know, I guess experts in certain areas, you know, you know, things like, um, you know, finance and, and execution mode. And that, that's not kind of where I was, at least at that time. Um, and so it, it just became um, apparent to me that, 
you know, it was it was likely the right time to look, look to do something new. And so I, I talked about it actually pretty openly with um, the leadership at 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 Jounce as well as um, some of the board members at at um, at Jounce. Uh, one of those was Bob Tepper, um, and Bob uh, was a common board member between. Uh, Constellation and Jones. Um, and, and we talked about a number of different things. I talked about, um, you, know, you know, joining up at Third Rock, um, becoming an EIR and helping them, you know, launch a new company. And then in those discussions, hey, Bob said, you know, hey, well, you know, your old company um, doesn't have a CEO right now and, and things are a, a little bit complicated and, um, you know, really we can maybe use some new leadership and help uh, to, to get things on track. And uh, you know this would be an opportunity to um, to jump into something that's you know not a nascent idea, but but rather you know a pretty mature organization. And and if you can get it back on track, it'll be it'll be pretty significant, pretty quickly, and probably a lot more quickly than than uh, kind of a brand new idea that you work with us on. And so so you know really it was great. I mean you know Bob said you can do either one. Um, you know we'd love we'd love to have you either one. And um, it, w- it wasn't the obvious move. I think uh, you know most 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 folks probably would have said I want to go do the the hot new startup. Um, but but remember, I, I actually never wanted to leave Constellation to begin with. I still had a lot of great friends there. I really believed in the science. Um, so I decided to dive in and and at least learn about what was there and um, you know what what went wrong. And um, you know after doing working kind of looking at that for a few weeks. You know, really got the conviction that that we could, um, you know, figure things out, um, and probably, uh, you know, r- rather quickly as well. So I took on that challenge. You were the chief business officer at Jounce, so mm-hmm. in the senior leadership team. But you know, uh, this also represents a chance to uh, come in for the uh, first time as a CEO to yeah. to really put your stamp on things and run things. And by this time, you're, you're about forty, I guess. Yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, almost um, uh, just yeah, just turned forty. That's right. So you're right. You know, you've got enough experience, the right kind of experience. You know this field well. Um, this uh, this appealed to you. Um, and uh, but by this time, gen- epigenetics is you know kind of old news, right? Everybody's like <laughs> hot over you know gene editing and gene yeah. therapy is back again, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Th- this was like not the obvious uh, hot new thing. Yeah, you know, but but I, I actually have a really good perspective on that sort of thing. I mean, uh, I remember when I first started working in the biotech industry, cell therapy and gene therapy were were, were dirty words. <laughs> you wouldn't you wouldn't go near that stuff with a ten foot pole. Um, and and so I, I sort of felt like um, again we were in the early innings of understanding what what the power of epigenetics could be. Um, and and the main thing that I thought was missing, and this was actually a, a great lesson that I learned from my time at Jowance, was. You know, we were all about translational science at Jones, um, kind of linking, linking patient populations to biology, um, and then at, you know the drug discovery was the piece that was um, you know more enabled, and certainly in small molecules it was readily enabled. Um, but what we were missing, you know, we had interesting targets, we had you know very very uh, um, interesting biochemistry and even early biology, but we were really feeling our way through the dark on who the patients were that were going to benefit from this, and you know. The early clinical uh, testing was was really kind of um, not really driven by kind of you know succinct biomarker strategies, and the ones that were that were there, you know, weren't necessarily um, you know deep enough or, or thought through well enough to really kind of um, kind of pan out. And so, um, 
you know, what I noticed that we had, we, so we had, you know, multiple programs that were active as single agents, um, you know, but we weren't seeing the blazing signals that you'd see in, you know, targeted oncology, like, uh, you know, the kinases where they were the driver mutations. And, and that's not what we were necessarily going to see in epigenetics, but there, but I did feel that there was a way to, um, to identify uh, um, kind of more of that biomarker driven context to drug development um, and it was just going to take more effort, and it was going to take an investment earlier. The situation that you entered here, taking the job in 2017, coming back to be CEO at Constellation, it was mostly preclinical. H- had there been uh, some some clinical work done with these lead two programs? Yeah, yeah. So actually, okay. so I mean, that was the beauty of it. I mean, so here here is a company that um, has two programs that are in the clinic that had shown single agent activity. Uh, in cancer, um, and, and so so I found that just kind of on 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 the face of it to be you know, very attractive, right? So the the challenge was, and and what Constellation didn't do a good job of coming out of the Genentech partnership was really define how are we going to get these drugs approved, right? The, the mindset that we were in was more, you know, let's enroll a few more patients and let's look for a signal and then we'll figure things out, rather than kind of mapping out a true strategy about how to get a drug approved. Um, and we didn't really have the team to do that either. We had a, a clinical development team of three people. Um, and so it was it was really not, uh, you know, it was very clear that the strategy was to sell the company to Genentech. And when that didn't pan out, um, the, it, it, we didn't morph into, um, you know, an independent company at all, right? It was still, it was still kind of chugging along with that same strategy, but without, without the option to be acquired. Um, and so, so I saw that as a very clear, um, uh, just, you know, just what needed to be done was so clear to me. Um, we had programs in the clinic, they were working, but, but we didn't have the right path to registration mapped out. You needed to zero in specifically on the right indication or the right patient population within an indication? Yeah, so that was the fundamental piece of it. So, so we... Um, so as a leadership team, um, you know, we said, look, you know, we're, we're, we were about 10 years old at that time. We're just coming up on our 10th anniversary. And so we were not in a place where we were going to be able to take a, take a kind of a long time to figure things out. And so one of the things that, you know, we kind of wrote out a really a, a one sentence vision statement that kind of captured everything that we would do. Um, and that was part of that was to launch a drug in the next five years. Um, and then also to have a pipeline that was translationally uh, uh, driven, where we'd be able to identify who the patients were and be able to have the biomarker strategies in place uh, to uh, pursue those with first in human trials. Um, you know, we were, we were past that. We were out of the gate already with our Vietnamese H2 programs. Um, so we'd have to backfill some of that. And, and that was the mindset that we went at it with. And, and everyone bought into that, but, but, and that made it super clear then. So, okay, we want to launch a drug in five years. Um, the lead programs were both being developed in lymphoma. This was in 2017. Uh, you know, CAR T's were about to be approved. Um, you know, Epizyme was ahead of us in in uh, lymphoma for ZH2. There were you know multiple different combination studies that were ongoing with you know different different targets, and so it just became clear that if we we're going to launch a drug in five years, it wasn't going to be in lymphoma. Well, and you've so got we actually put put. You've got other things to worry about too. I mean, you got um, you know no more money to research support coming from Genentech, so you got a 
like raise yeah. some money. You got to recruit some people in clinical development in particular. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you've got yeah, to, yeah. I, I would imagine, like deal with all this external um, negativity in the world. Because I bet for like the first six months or a year, the first question anybody wants to ask you is like, why did Genentech walk? That was one question. The other question was, well, how is this different from Epizyme? And, and uh, I don't get those questions at all anymore. Um, and so, um, you know, so really, really happy that we were able to kind of, you know, traverse through that. But, but you're right. I mean, but, and part of getting folks to, um, you know, understand and want to invest in the story was to demonstrate that we could execute on the new vision that did require, um, you know, substantially morphing the team. Um, you know, we, we brought in a new CMO. Um, we brought in a new head of business development, a new CFO. A new head of legal. Um, we promoted somebody from within to CSO, um, and so it was pretty much a brand new team, um, um, almost top to bottom, except for a couple of exceptions. And you needed to do a couple bridge financings. I mean, how much money was in the bank? Were you guys starting to run on fumes after a while? Yeah. So, I mean, the great news is that we had very, very committed investors, and and, and in particular, um, the Column Group was uh, was tremendous, and they. You know, they had strong conviction that the science, the underlying science at Constellation was strong, and they were going to stick with it. And, and not only did they stick with it, but they actually uh, put together, um, and this is even before I got there, uh, a syndicate investors uh, of, their, of their own limited partners to support the company. And that was, that was a blessing and a curse at the same time, because I think it also, um, it didn't put adequate pressure on the management team to really figure things out. Um, you know, without that, with that, with that kind of, uh, you know, that cushion that they had there, but they had raised post Genentech, they had raised a hundred million dollars, um, over kind of a year and a half period. So um, you're not in danger of running out of, of money. Yeah, but we didn't have a year of cash either. So, you know, we had to figure things out quickly and we did have to raise external capital. And, and so, so one of the things that I had to do was to, uh, you know, get these various, you know, and the, and the, the three major investors in the company were still, you know, the column group, third rock. And, and Venrock, and they all had very different ideas about how to create value, um, and, and getting them all aligned around a strategy to um, to essentially recap the company, um, you know, was not simple. Um, and I had to prove to them that it wasn't going to be possible to uh, finance the company the way that we had been. Uh, all the while, um, you know, the science we had to you know get moving in the clinical development, we had to get moving in a new direction to actually attract new capital. Um, but, but, you know, I, I played ball with them to, to, to try to raise capital at, at kind of a, a flat round. Um, you know, we, we weren't going to be able to do that. And so we did, we did eventually, um, you know, kind of all at the same time, kind of lightning struck in a bottle. We, we had, you know, new important clinical data emerge from, uh, one of the programs that were in the clinic, um, at the time that we needed to raise money. Um, and we were able to pull together, Probably it was the in 2018. It was probably the biggest crossover round of the year with a hundred million dollar round, um, and, and 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 I drove uh, kind of personally the valuation down, um, you know, because I because to get to where we needed to get to, we were probably going to need hundreds of millions of more dollars, and I needed the valuation to be in a place that it could support not just that round, but the future rounds in the IPO and, and onwards. Right, because that was a crossover round. You were aiming toward an IPO, hopefully later in the year. Correct. Yeah, that's right. That's okay. Right. Okay. So what was that piece of data that gave you and uh, the investors confidence there in early 18? So this was a, a new direction that we took our EZH2 program into, um, CPI 1205. Um, and we recognized that, uh, that um, prostate cancer was an indication where you know, EZH2 and 
you know, had some hypersensitivity, I guess, where, where there was synergy between uh, androgen receptor signaling. Um, and, and that took us to thinking about where we can apply that to, and that was in you know, second-line metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. You know, once a patient fails in AR therapy, they usually take another one and doesn't work that well. And with the synergy that we were seeing in the preclinical work that we had, uh, had done, you know, we thought that was a good application for that that was outside of lymphoma where, where competitors were. And, um, you know, the, the first three patients that we treated had these blazing responses. I mean, they had, you know, their PSA, you know, dropped 80%. You know, one patient had their bone meds disappear. Another patient had um, a partial response by resist, which is quite rare to see in prostate cancer. And that got everyone pretty, pretty, you know, really excited. Okay. So, and those are well-established drugs. And if you're showing a benefit above of abiraterone or enzalutamide, like that's, um, you know, pretty clear, big market prostate cancer. A lot of people understand it. That that's a story you can tell. Okay. But, but what about this BET program and how did you end up on myelofibrosis as the, the right indication? (laughs) So in the meantime, we had in the background, we had, we had this data and MF emerging, and it was a little bit on a slow burn. Um, so we, uh, you know, we were, you know, so the, the Achilles heel of BET inhibition has always been um, on target, cumulative, irreversible thrombocytopenia. And, that, and that's why we haven't seen more BET inhibitors advance in the clinic. Thrombocytopenia, for those unfamiliar, it's like a decrease of platelets, uh, and it leads to bleeding, can lead to bleeding episodes. That's right. Correct. Yes, and so um, what we what we noticed with uh, CPI zero six ten is that we had a very different profile. We we did see on target thrombocytopenia and platelet reduction, but it was not irreversible and it was not cumulative. And we had a nice window to work with where we saw activity at a whole range of doses below the maximum tolerated dose, where we saw um, you know you know uh, thrombocytopenia as the dose limiting toxicity. And so we, we dug into investigating kind of what was behind that. And that led, led us to um, the biology behind uh, um, myeloid cells um, and specifically the differentiation of myeloid cells into megakaryocytes. Now, megakaryocytes are the key cells that create platelets. They're the ones that are, that are being inhibited by BET inhibition. But, but there was an insight there. Um, and again, this is kind of going back to the translational mindset that those are also the cells in the bone marrow that are proliferating, that are crowding out healthy cells, that are damaging uh, uh, the environment by spewing out kind of inflammatory cytokines. And so that if we can, if we have this window that we can take advantage of that no other BET inhibitor has been able to, that maybe, that maybe we could, uh, we could, um, you know, provide a a respite to the bone marrow to heal. Um, And as we kind of uh, articulated that, um, one of the clinical investigators who was working with us uh, Ron Hoffman at Mount Sinai said he was really uh, enticed by the idea and wanted to try it. And you know, we we we, we kind of we kind of took a, a flyer on it and we modified our AML trial, which we were about to bring to a close, and just let them enroll a few patients. And lo and behold, those patients all started responding too. So we had these these two programs, which were kind of struggling to find a footing, and now both of them were seeing these blazing responses in two different areas that we had not conceived of before. And myelofibrosis, for people not familiar, I mean, it's just like the name sounds, myelo. It's the these blood-forming cells, fibrosis, scarring or damage that happens in the bone marrow. And it's often been thought of as a, 
a pre-leukemia syndrome, but I don't think people call it that anymore. I mean, it's it's really like its own form of a cancer, an early cancer, um, and it affects quite a few people, uh, tens of thousands. It's it's not a very very tiny indication. And there's not a lot there. A lot of people have tried. Uh, there's Jackify now, the Jack inhibitor, but um, not a lot more. So, like, you, I, I'm sure you sized this all up and thought maybe there's a role for us. Yeah, and absolutely, especially with the results that we were seeing. I mean, the patients that Ron Hoffman had enrolled in the study were, you know, probably the sickest of the sick patients. And these all these patients, most of them had mutations that predict for non-responsiveness to Jackify. Um, you know, these patients were, uh, you know, very poor prognostic factors. They were all anemic. Um, one of the four patients was transfusion dependent, getting transfused as a result of their, their bone marrow not doing its job. Um, they were unable to uh, produce enough red blood cells and they relied on blood transfusions, you know, every, every three or four weeks. That patient is, is now, uh, you know, the last time we reported results in this patient was April 17th. And this patient was, 69 weeks without a blood transfusion and counting. And so now that's been at least, you know, six more months now. So, so, um, so that's been, uh, th- those are the kind of results that we were seeing. Um, but, you know, remember this was, uh, we kind of took a flyer on this. We amended our AML protocol. It wasn't quite ready to be a full fledged um, MF study. And we kind of, we had one site, one investigator was enrolling patients. So we really had some operational work to do to get that kind of moving in the right direction but but Jigger, just to come to pause here, you um, through studying your um, the cleanliness, let's say, of the side effect profile, uh, is that how you came to better articulate that mechanism about the activity with uh, dampening down the NF kappa B and the TGF beta signaling, which you know is is a big part of the of the problem. Yeah, so precisely. I mean, I mean, one of the things that we do know about about BET inhibition that it does have an impact impact on inflammation, and inflammation is a big part of of MF. But but the new insight was really this insight around uh, myeloid cell differentiation, and uh, okay. the, the the cells that are responsible for reducing platelets are also the cells responsible for uh, you know driving the disease or causing the disease. And so if we if we and if we have a window there. Um, you know, where we can affect those cells without having rampant thrombocytopenia. You know, that, that was the, the key insight. Um, and that's, that's really played out where we're actually, you know, modifying these patients' disease and, and their fibrosis is reversing. You know, you know, the scarring of the bone marrow is actually, you know, getting better, which is, you know, you know very rare to see. Um, and so, so it's, really, uh, it's really kind of played out in, the, in the, exactly the way that we had hoped it would. Well, so this, um, you started with the science. I mean, you had people who had been working for long, long years on the science, and now you're, you're finding a patient population that, that looks uh, promising. And that's when you just decided to prioritize this manifest study with multiple cohorts, both the, the sickest patients and some who are treatment naive. And this is the data that you are now preparing to present here at ASH. Um, the, the abstracts are up there live on the website. You've announced it. Um, and this is the part that <laughs> made me and, and I think the, the stock market say, wow. Uh, uh, for, for people who, who have not seen it, uh, you're, you're looking at a variety of different endpoints here. It's a little different with myelofibrosis than your typical uh, cancer. Uh, you know, you're not looking at tumor shrinkage. You're looking at things like spleen volume reduction, total symptom scores, 
Uh, but you're seeing 90, more than 90%, like 29 of the first 31 patients seeing spleen volume reduction. Uh, and total symptom score, 26 out of 28 patients uh, seeing uh, improvements in their symptoms, 93%. I mean, w- wow. And not just a little, but like a, a lot of improvement. Yeah, and so the, these are the patients that have, um, in the specific uh, uh, data that you're referring to are the patients that um, have already failed Jacify um, and really don't have any other options. I mean, there, there's recently another JAK inhibitor that was approved that looks very, very similar um, and may have a bit more of a safety uh, kind of hurdle. So, so there's really not much available to these patients. Um, and, and so to, to see these types of effects, uh, you know, not just on the spleen, but symptom, but symptoms, but also you know, reversing their fibrosis in the, in the bone marrow, um, and then also seeing that translate into natural improvements in hematologic function, like hemoglobin increases. So now these patients aren't as tired as they were, and they don't need to get transfused as often. And some patients have become completely transfusion independent. Um, and so th- those are pretty striking effects. The, the challenge um, in that context is that there, there's nothing approved in this post-Jackify setting. And so how do you think about the right endpoints? Um, how do you think about you know the right studies to do to get a drug approved, even though we have you know really striking, compelling data? Is not simple, and and we do have uh, we do have things that we think that are path forward there, but but that's kind of what led us to then thinking about well, um, we've got this ability to to have this impact on patients. We we actually have already shown that we can combine six ten with Jackify um, and have an effect and also do it safely. And so that led to the aha moment that we should perhaps not just focus on the Jackify failures as a primary strategy, but rather shift our primary strategy to Jack, Jack inhibitor naive patients. So essentially move frontline and try to establish a new standard of care. And so there was a second abstract that also published that showed our first four patients in that Jack inhibitor naive setting all had a, a response both on spleen and symptoms. And those, those are the key endpoints that you'd use for an approvable study. And so now all of a sudden it became crystal clear how to get the drug approved um, as well as um, a a much larger uh, opportunity to change standard of care and to really essentially grow the MF, uh, um, you know, the the number of patients that could benefit um, from a a therapy in MF um, could now grow uh, the number of patients who can't tolerate Jackify. Now, Now we can potentially access those patients. Um, and provide them a new therapy. And so I think that's what the major excitement is all about. I think people are really, really excited about the second line data, but the possibility of, of doing something new in, in the first line setting, even though it's a small number of patients, I think have gotten really, really everyone's attention. Treatment naive patients. Now it's still, as you say, small numbers, four out of four, <laughs> four patients, but um, you know, that that's really encouraging. And you're seeing a greater magnitude of improvement on the spleen Correct. volume reduction and the total symptoms than you did in the sicker patients, which again is encouraging. And as far as safety goes, the, the thrombocytopenia and the anemia that you might expect it's it's down below fewer than ten percent of the patients assessed Correct, at yeah. this point. That's right. right. Yeah, and again, speaks to the the differentiated profile of six ten versus other BET inhibitors, and also um, versus Jackify. I mean, so one of the things that you'd expect with Jackify is that forty five percent of the patients would have grade three four anemia in the first uh, few months of treatment, and and so far, you know, we're we're somewhere around ten percent, um, and these were actually in patients that were anemic to begin with. 
Um, and so again, that, that if we're, we're actually able to, uh, you, you know, help, uh, the main reason or one of the main reasons why patients don't take Jacrify, that could, that could be tremendously helpful to expand the opportunity again. Okay. So you're going to present an updated cut of this data at ASH, correct? That's right. Yeah. More patients with a little more follow-up. Is that what we can expect? Yeah, so what we'll have in the we'll have two different presentations. One will be an oral presentation uh, that will be focused on our um, Jackify resistant second line patients, and and there we have a very nice mature set of data where we'll have you know forty plus patients that have you know longer follow up, and and so we'll be able to see you know the durability of the effects um, of, of six ten um, in a larger number of patients. Um, and then we'll have, uh, you, you know, the first glimpse was in the ASH abstracts, and we'll have now, um, you know, uh, 10 to 15, maybe closer to 15 patients worth of data in that Jack inhibitor naive context as well. Okay, okay. And this um, uh, is setting the table for an ambitious new clinical development program, like a pivotal set of studies in 2020? That's right. We're 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 gear, we're gearing up right now. We're doing all the blocking and tackling and the preparing to launch a pivotal trial um, uh, or a phase three study in in mid twenty twenty. Um, we also did announce that we've expanded a number of the cohorts um, in the phase two study. So there there could be upside opportunity where where those phase two cohorts could lead to um, some regulatory interactions. That I mean, it's, it's still exploratory, but there could be some upside opportunities. But but the base case is that we'd start a phase three. Uh, in mid 2020. I mean, it's really uh, all happened pretty quickly. I mean, <laughs> you know, you've only been here for two years in your return or. Yeah, two and a half years coming up in three years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you know, this thing was, uh, you know, it was kind of a little driftless for a while. Uh, you know, it, it got on track. You took this thing public at 15 bucks a share. I think as of this recording, you're somewhere around 40 maybe. <laughs> uh, you've got a clear path forward here with myelofibrosis. We haven't even really talked about uh, EZH2, uh, but that's still alive too. Um, wh- where do you think this thing is, is going to go here in the next uh, four or five you're not going to well, quit after four years, I, I take no, it, right? <laughs> that's not the plan. That's not the plan. <laughs> um, you, you know, the, what I'm most proud about really is uh, is the team that we built. Um, I mean, it, it's truly a remarkable group of people um, that we have, um, you know, on the executive team as well as, um, you know, people uh, supporting them. Um, and, and we all get along really well. Um, we all understand each other. I mean, we have our moments, um, but everyone knows we're coming from a good place and we all rely on each other and we help each other. Um, and that's a major portion of uh, the culture and a major por- a major reason why I think we've been able to achieve what we've achieved. Um, and the goal is to keep pushing that. Um, you know, we're, we've uh, kind of transitioned the company into, uh, you know, from early development to late development in the last couple of years. The goal is to take the next step and to, you know, kind of build out and internalize a lot of those late development pieces and also think about commercialization. Um, and so so that's what we're building towards. Uh you know, um, you know, like several other companies ahead of us have done. And so there's a good roadmap for us to think to follow there. But, but, uh, you know, building that team and having a sustainable engine. Um, and you're right, we haven't talked much about EZH2. We actually have multiple EZH2 inhibitors that are now in the clinic, as well as a, a, a discovery pipeline where we, you know, we reimagined and rethought some things. Uh, but we think that it's sustainable. Um, and so uh, our vision is to create um, the next fully integrated biotech company. 
It's really awesome to hear Jigger and to, you know, you can, I can hear it coming through your voice that, that resilience uh, and that teamwork that it takes to, to get, to get through a rough patch because all companies go through it at some point or another. Yeah, that's right. That that maybe comes from those early days spent uh, in my parents' store, (laughs) the resilience aspect (laughs) of it. (laughs) Well, thanks very much for joining me and uh, best of luck at Ash. Okay, thanks a lot, Luke. I really appreciate it, and uh, and, and and good luck to you on your uh, your next climb. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music comes from D. A. Wallach. See you next episode.